Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. In this episode of Procurement Reimagined, Eloise Epstein, partner at Kearney, joins us to share her future vision of all things procurement, including data platforms, contract management tools, AI, and risk management. She shares her insights on how businesses can future-proof their operations to align with what lies beyond the horizon. Eloise has over 22 years of experience in digital procurement. She's an advocate for the advancement of procurement practices and, in her own words, is a digital futurist focused on supply chains. She specializes in how to apply digital to solve actual business problems. Eloise, I wanted to almost dive straight in. (laughs) But before we dive straight in, one of my colleagues was talking to me and he very much wanted me to ask this question about your current role. So could you explain your current role to me? Like I'm a five-year-old who almost doesn't understand anything. (laughs) My current role is two parts. Half of my job is helping people understand the digital landscape. Not sure a five-year-old, actually probably a five-year-old would understand digital language. I think they would. (laughs) Yeah, actually, probably more so than those of my generation. Then the other half is looking at the future and how the future will change what we do today or can change what we do today. And so what are the changes that we need to make? And so as I think about the future, I get to imagine what could be and what should be and not be constrained by what is. Yeah, it's a really nice position, right, to do this almost like blue sky thinking on steroids is to have none of the the constraints. And I've seen backlash whenever I post about things like that. And I'm doing this kind of futuristic view and people are like, hey, no, that's impossible. We don't have this tech now. And I almost feel like people in the procurement space at times are very resistant to this kind of thinking, which I find very frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's important. And and so I'm not thinking about like random things about, (laughs) oh, well, if, if we had driverless cars and hover planes and all of that, although there are people that do that. And I, I find that very fascinating. My training's not in that, but I actually, I look at questions and (laughs) to your point about procurement, we just assume that source to pay is the platform, like that is our digital platform. But if you actually stop and think, well, maybe that's not the right platform. And one of the posts I have coming up is an architecture for procurement. I make the argument that we need one. And what does that look like? And it's not that it has to be so vastly different. In fact, I argue that it sits within the cloud platform, within the ERP construct, but we get to define what we need for procurement. And similarly for the supply chain, we're anchored into this idea that the ERP is the center of our systems. And so as a futurist, I get to ask the question, well, what if that wasn't the case? And more importantly, I get to make the argument that, (laughs) hey, we need to move beyond the ERP. And that's, I think, where when I think future back, it's sort of taking some of these big things that don't work today and sort of reimagining how they could work. 
Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think it's a wonderful job you're doing. And actually, uh, your point around architecture there, it's just maybe over the last two months, I've seen a new role just appear on my LinkedIn feed, which is wonderful, which is procurement architect. And I've seen it a bit over the like maybe the last few years, but there was a few that I saw within a very short space of time. And I'm just thinking, are we just getting to the point now where maybe people are latching onto these ideas that there is a bit more thought that needs to be put around this? And are we about to move away from the uh, very traditional ERP source to pay way of working? <laughs> well, there are three massive very- questions in there. Maybe I'll, <laughs> let's try to work through those. I think, and I wrote this in my current book, Historically, it's been half an FTE dedicated to managing the whatever technology contract, the, you know, whatever source to pay platform. But that's not digital. That's just managing a contract. To be digital, and I think this has become real, this is why you're seeing so many of these architect roles, is you have to understand what's going on in the market and be at the forefront. And oh, by the way, be plugged into this community of startups, of understanding and networking with your peers and understanding and exchanging information. I actually find as an observer, the digital architects we're talking about, we bring them together. And when we do that, the information that's exchanged is, it is truly like gold. And I hate to use that term, but so I so said that very much is a role that's growing in importance because the procurement function is growing in, in importance. And so you can't just have half an FTE sort of part-time managing a contract. You got to be at the forefront and you see with the procurement garage at British Telecom, you can see with J&J, Roche, all these others that are out there talking about the SAM at Mars. They're not only at the forefront of it with their organizations, but they're helping cultivate and curate and be the face of many of these startups, which I think is amazing. I think the other piece is, is implicit in that, in what goes unsaid, is that we are moving beyond the source to pay construct and eventually we are moving beyond the ERP construct. So my current book is really about blowing up the source to pay paradigm because if you really think about it, the procure to pay or the rec to pay part is important. We've got to get invoices, raise POs, pay suppliers. Great, do that. But this whole source to contract, intelligence, data management, it kind of explodes after that. and even. Beyond that, we actually need to create intelligence. We need supplier intelligence. We need risk intelligence. We need ESG intelligence. And much of that is bespoke to every organization. So the idea that you have one monolithic end-to-end provider that can do all of this, that not in today's corporate enterprise. Can I just say that your use of the word monolithic, just perfect, because that has <laughs> become my newfound. Just, I just love that word so much there. Your vision, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is effectively, you use the analogy of an iPhone or a smartphone, right? You've got multiple apps, you can click on them, data is usable throughout all of them, it's all synced up, it's all clean, it's all wonderful. How far do you think we're off truly seeing that? I'm really curious with your thoughts there, because I have a feeling that you're seeing a lot that other people aren't seeing in this space. Yeah, so I would separate out. So, so to me, the platform consists arguably of four things and c- consists of that user experience. I'll come back to that. It consists of the app store, this is the integration of all these complexities, 
the data foundation, which is in procurement's case, the supplier or more broadly, the third party and intelligence. And so intelligence is, again, something's going to be bespoke. We're going to build it, but you have to have clarity on who your suppliers are and you have to have those golden records. So somebody has to solve that. And then the app store is pretty self-explanatory. But until we get those three things, we can't really have that iPhone experience or the iPad experience. It just is coming, but it's slow because we have to get those other pieces right or perhaps in tandem. And I think what I've come to real, and yes, I do see things that I'm not able to talk about yet, that that doesn't mean like in March, you're going to see, oh my God, the vision come to pass. The vision will come to pass slowly over time and we'll see it in incremental pieces. What I do see though is it's less about, okay, did somebody build that iPad view or whatnot, but more of maturity or evolution of the providers because it has more to do with timing. And this is sort of a realization I had recently. The problem with the big providers is they're just entrenched in day-to-day, you have to make clients happy and you have to sell as much as you can. So no matter how much money you put towards innovation, no matter how many companies you acquire, you're not building this vision I'm talking about. And even the startups that have come about in the last three, four, five, six years, they're on their own trajectories to getting to profitability and then exiting. And by the way, that's their motivation. Their motivation is not building to my vision, (laughs) to my blueprint. Their motivation is to increase sales, which means tapping back a little bit into the, you know, it's like they have to sell more. They have to deal with legacy issues. They have to integrate with SAP or whatever ERP system. So they get stuck and they get mired down in the internal politics, the this, the that, the whatever. So very quickly, their focus turns to what do I need to do to get that sale to get the, in advance of the exit? If you and I started, a, a, you know, created our own company today, we could largely step to the side of that and actually avoid the legacy entrenchment and sort of build to the future. Now, there's things we need in place. But if you're starting today, I actually think you have a better shot at sort of my vision more so than anybody that's out in the market today. This is why I'm so excited to have you on here, because the way in which you talk when you're talking about these subjects, I can tell that you're thinking about it as you're talking, you're pulling all of this expertise, this research, all of the read-ins and conversations you have. And it sometimes sounds like you're almost having new thoughts all the time. And then that's kind of my observation. It may not be, but that's my observation of listening to you for a couple of years. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm just cool listening. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I talk to people every day right after this. I'm talking to a CPO. I do workshops all the time. I put these provocative ideas out there and And frequently, I'll just test new ideas with unsuspecting audiences just to see how they react. And I'm deliberately provocative and I poke them to see how they react. So I'm always testing. And yes, it's changing. And and I very frequently will, you know, like note something down. I'm working on my new book, by the way. And um, I just, one of the reasons why I was late to this or discombobulated is. Um, so I was in a workshop a few weeks ago and somebody told me I was 
jabbing at them about contract lifecycle management. And then somebody raises their hand and says, we have 430,000 contracts in our system. Hey, wow. Like, oh my God, that's great. Like, you know, that's great. Okay. And then I'm just waiting. It's like, okay, and? And? Like, and it got really uncomfortable. It was like, okay, so th there's nothing else to be said. I guess we, we just got the 430,000 contracts and then we stopped. Like, that's... And to me, well, first of all, I want to know what's in those 430,000 contracts. Yeah, me but, too. I want to know the clauses. Yeah, exactly. Like the cascade of questions that follows from there, like that's what it means to be digital. And, and so that was just a random comment by a random person, but that has now become a section of my, you know, a couple of paragraphs in my new book because it's an exemplar of digital literacy in analytical inquiry. And so, uh, yes, so I'm constantly thinking about this and really having to figure that out. Yeah, you've got my brain. Twirling because I was, exactly. I was just thinking there, like, I, I want to know, like, what the high risk clauses, how do you determine those high risk clauses? Who signed them off? Where's these risks split out? Like, what's the relationship like there? We're on the, the contract side. Where's the performance management of that contract? I don't know, Eloise, I don't know how much you know of my background, but I'm a massive contract management nerd within the procurement space. That's kind of where my. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I know that, which is why I thought you'd appreciate that. Yes, yeah. And for one, that's sheer number. I mean, I've not worked in organizations outside of government that are big enough to have contracts like that. And that sheer number in the first place, I'm just thinking like, I'm just excited by what they could do with that. Right, you have the same reaction I do. And that's my point. That's what it means to be digital, to really go after that. And I wanna know how many of those are active. I mean, maybe only oh, yeah. 10,000, right? <laughs> so many questions. Yeah, exactly. Because it should draw, like the intellectual curiosity should draw us into that. And so then I asked the question, the reaction you and I are having, why is nobody else in that room having that? And so, yeah, no, I'm constantly being influenced by the interaction. I mean, I have tons of interactions like that. And and some of them are just a lot of the same, like, well, how do I fix my supplier data? Or how do I do this? But there are then these moments that just like spin new topics that need addressing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so happy you brought that up because it's been a while since I've been in the contract management space as a practitioner now. It's almost a year out and uh, it's good to uh, stay close to it. What are the biggest issues you have with current tech providers? And I'm asking this as well, being a tech provider in the space, right? <laughs> like I, I almost feel like we could get shot down. I'm giving you freedom here to shoot everyone down in the space. And you kind of touched on some of them, right? Like just now in that, you know, if we made a company today, they would align better to your vision than companies made probably over the last you know, five to 10 years and especially pre-pandemic. Is there anything else that you think procurement tech, contract management technology, you know, we can go as wide as we want here with that definition. Is there anything that they're getting wrong time and time again? Well, I think there's two things and, I, and I'm not going to miss an opportunity to drag big ERP, <laughs> but like I got interviewed for an article some time ago and they asked me to play out 50 years and I, I could not let go. I said, if we do not get rid of the ERP, we will never get to any future. Like they, they wanted the flying cars and the, you know, jet packs and whatever else. And <laughs> I was like, look, we have to ditch the ERP. And so this is probably not to the tech providers. This is to the heads of supply chain and CIOs. And I have a chapter in my new book that is, you know, we are living in a post ERP world. We just haven't accepted it yet. 
And so I really just take aim at, let's just say that audience and really like thump them over the head repeatedly because that's what's holding us back. And this legacy thinking that, that the ERP, that's one. And then the other one is just, well, actually I'll make two points that are related. AI or data is the new oil or all I hear is AI, AI, machine learning, machine learning, oh. AI. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, Everywhere. Like, and actually as a sub point to this, we'll I'll see if I can keep all this threaded together. The question clients ask me the most is about blockchain. And I just tell them it's nonsense. And they're just, the relief just comes over them. So like anybody that has blockchain, I stop listening to them and then I roll up the newspaper to swat them away. But to go back, so like this, you know, AI, AI, AI nonsense. Every startup does this. Every tech company does this. First of all, the clients don't understand it. Second of all, certainly the sales reps don't understand it. It's irrelevant. And so like, okay, my assumption is you have all that under the covers. Good, go, go do that. We don't need to know about it, right? Right, exactly. And then the other part is, and I saw this on LinkedIn and I didn't capture it. So, but right now we're getting the big chat GPT, you know, like it's out there everywhere and how's it going to change procurement? Like we're asking the wrong question. This quote was, you're not going to lose your job to chat GPT, you're going to lose your job to the person that figures out how to use it better than you. So hopefully anybody listening to this, if they know where that quote was, please let me know. Because that's really like, it's applying these concepts to what we do. And so we have to improve our literacy and our understanding of this stuff. So the tech companies coming in and just like, you know, wah, 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 it doesn't help. No, on the, the AI point is super interesting, right? Like we have an internal channel where we talk about AI, but we don't talk about it outwardly very often because hardly anyone understands. And I think I listened to something with you and Sarah Scudder, and you were talking about like your very deep machine learning and expertise, your understandings, like the research. And I followed a few of those and just got completely lost, if I'm being honest, yeah. in that. I was like, yeah. oh, this is going to require a dedicated amount of learning to truly understand how this all pulls together because it's not just one layer. It's, there's like a web of things. And procurement pros, maybe legal pros, contract management pros, they just don't necessarily care about this. They just want to know, how is this going to get me from A to B and do it in the most efficient way possible? So no, that's a, I'm glad that I, I asked that question. Yeah. And so I spend a lot of time in my new book on this question. And to your previous point about I'm always churning on these ideas, like the fact that I just get pummeled by AI, even by my colleagues. And it's just like at a certain point, it's like, does anybody really know what you're talking about? Like, can we just stop? Like, what are we trying to get at? And an understanding because AI is not a magic button. There are no magic buttons in technology. And so we have to really appreciate the nuance. And oh, by the way, all these algorithms are fed by data. Well, guess what you just told me five, not you, but like, I just found out that every organization has terrible data. So don't be talking about AI if we don't, we're not having a conversation about data. Yeah, it's a really good point, right? Like when I was implementing Gatekeeper, I did a source and exercise, chose Gatekeeper, and then looked at the implementation and then uh, started going through our in, our data, which I already knew was awful, right? That's part of the reason I wanted somewhere to put data. We had it coming from a million and one sources. And then I was like, oh, our data is so much worse than I could have possibly imagined as soon as I started extracting it out of all of the tools. And that set me back two months, just at yeah. one point of just having to relentlessly clean it up. I had an intern with me that 
that helped out and uh, I had an outsource partner that helped me out clean things up. But it just shows, right? Like you can't do anything with horrendous data or even if it's just got a few missing points, you'll lose the story and going on to AI, right? It's worthless without that. Exactly. So like, what's the point? And true AI, like the chat GPT and these transformer models is you need vast amounts of data. Come on, like the scale is so out of whack. And then the question that I have, of course, like any good researcher is, well, where's the bias? And what's missing from the data set? Because, and this is true, <laughs> the other thing that drives me crazy is, is all these web scraping companies that scour the internet for everything, more so in risk and ESG. It's like, well, that's great. I'm glad you've consumed all that information. But what are you not consuming? Because the greatest risks to the enterprise come from the places where there's no data being generated or no digital data. So that drives me crazy too. Yeah, the bias point's really interesting. I've been playing around with these generative AI tools, especially mid-journey to make images for like creative stuff. And um, one thing I've noticed time and time again, it makes everyone white. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I put any instruction in and it's always male and I have to ask it to make females versions of whatever I'm doing. It's just little things like that. And yeah, I just wonder how do you remove that bias or how do you have some sort of cleansing of that? It's super interesting to think about. You mentioned Brisk there, and I'm going to use that as a segue here because I really wanted to talk to you and get some of your thoughts around, and I, I'm reading here because I'm going to butcher it otherwise. In your book, you talk about a strategy or a framework, signal, strategy, and action framework, and how teams could utilize that. And my thoughts are, I have a lot of conversations and people are actually talking about risk management more than I've ever heard them talk about it. It's kind of wonderful. Could you give like maybe an overview or your thoughts around that framework? Would it be okay if I admitted that I've expanded that framework in my new book? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. For two reasons. Well, maybe three reasons. One, everybody is talking about risk management and resiliency. So that's good. Like we're really having these conversations. But I also think that we need to even expand and go deeper and frameworks like mine, and there's a gazillion frameworks out there. It's, it's less about the framework, although I have admittedly, I have an expanded framework. <laughs> a new framework. Mind. It doesn't negate what I've talked about there, but I just, there's more to do. But I think the problems, the opportunities with risk management get back to the data. And I don't care if you have the best framework in the world, whether it's mine or somebody else's, if you don't know who your suppliers are, then you are not doing risk management. And if you have 30,000 suppliers or more, you are not doing risk management. You are doing what I now <laughs> term risk theater. And so it doesn't matter what the framework is. We have to actually get good at the fundamentals of the design of our information, of our intelligence. And that's that. So that's a little bit where I made a slight pivot because I realized nobody cares about the framework. Everybody needs to be looking at who are the suppliers and have we designed for simplicity, essentially. Yeah, no, it's cool. I'm glad I asked that question. I would really like to answer that question after my new book comes up. We can do that for sure. No, I appreciate you can't answer that. I'm glad that you're evolving it as well. Why I thought there were some cool insights there. It's not anything that's bad. It, it, you know, I didn't say anything that's wrong. And I also wouldn't say that no risk management provider has done anything wrong. No other consulting. Like, it's just we're looking at the wrong level. We need to actually go ground like bottoms up. Because until we actually, what I realized, 
realized is great framework, but it's the reality on the ground that we're getting tripped up on the basics. And, and that doesn't mean just go buy a tool. In fact, we're getting the tools are creating chaos too, because again, we don't have the right tools. And then the other thing that drives me crazy is we're putting the huge burden on the suppliers. Go fill out this, go fill out this survey, go fill out that survey, 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 survey. So we need to move beyond that. And so, so I sort of looked at all of these problems together and decided, okay, let's just set that aside. I assume all these tools are great. I assume the frameworks are great, but actually let's look at it from a, you know, like let's do the build up from the bottom. Yeah, I know. It's a cool point. Like maybe I'll share an observation that, that I've had over maybe like say, let's just say seven years. Cause that's all I, that, that is my uh, working career in procurement contract management. My biggest challenges with people I've worked with and the teams that I've had is like, when do we actually even identify that there's a risk? Because we may have these these questionnaires that are out, or we may have this external data feed that pulls information. But every day in conversations that we're having, we're identifying new risks or new issues or new problem scenarios. And uh, I would have conversations with people after they've had these calls or these meetings or you know these site visitors. I'm like, well, what are you doing with that? Oh, nothing. Yeah, And exactly. it's almost like, why? That is, to me, that's the magic. That is everything that we need. And it's probably better than anything we'll get elsewhere. It's from the source. It's just come out in natural conversation. We need to be tracking all of this and working to mitigate it or you know work around it or you know, going back to them on these points because they could come back and really hurt us. Or maybe they're not overly sinister, right? But there's just cool information that allows us to build up a better picture of our suppliers and the contracts. This is one observation that I've had over you know, seven years. In- yeah, it's, what do you do about it? I mean, we just talked about bias in AI, but I guarantee you neither of us are going to take tangible steps to solve it today. And if you look at some of these resiliency sort of plans and like the first recommendation is always, well, don't single source. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like, like your five-year-old knows that better. Like, that's the recommendation. Like, we're not single sourcing because we're stupid. Maybe the question we have to ask is, is how do we build a bigger supply market? And it's not identifying because if, I mean, if we haven't identified and there's another legitimate supplier, fine, that we're not doing our job. The assumption is everyone's doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if they're not, then, you know, fire them and move on. But you know, if there's only a single source, then how do you invest in, build, create an additional capacity? And those are big problems and they take time. <laughs> so just saying don't single source is like, and that's the part that gets mixed up in here. And and the other piece I want to point out is you send out all these surveys. Well, is anybody really looking at the data that comes back? It's a tick box, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a colossal tick box exercise. And even the suppliers, we assume that they understand half of this stuff and they understand how the question is. I mean, I actually, again, I, I think that suppliers legitimately, they're not fraudulent, but like I know that when I respond to RFPs, I don't understand some of the questions and if I don't understand it. Like how can the other people do it? So like, what's the quality of the data you're getting back? That doesn't make you any safer than doing or not doing the survey. Yeah, so it's a good point, right? And uh, the whole approach to asking questions on forms, like I've seen it as a colossal time waste and tick box exercise. Some of the questions are very well merited. Most of them aren't, and they're just used to satisfy someone else somewhere 
And uh, yeah, if you're not using the data that you get from it, just don't ask it. Right. It's that simple to me. But yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of issues in the past with this line of reasoning with colleagues and uh, superiors, let's say, at times. Yeah, but you have to ask their question, you know, what, what's their motivation for doing that? And again, this is the question about when it comes to risk management. Are we trying to defend our organization or are we trying to defend internal politics? And I think once you get to that question, then you can really have an answer. Like the greatest risk to your organization comes through your third parties. So you have to really look at how you're managing your third parties and, and asking them a risk questionnaire doesn't help you get more secure. So how do we create that defense posture? That's what I'm looking at now so that we can have the conversation and point out how utterly stupid it is to say, well, they filled out the survey. Well, well, I have a client that's been hacked and customer data exposed eight times. So like, quit telling me about you know these surveys. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's super interesting. I had that exact scenario happen to one of my key suppliers, right? Like uh, maybe Christmas time, 2021, got hacked. Wasn't sure if they exposed a bunch of our confidential contractual data. They, they didn't, but like, what was interesting is like we were able to actually use some of the data we collected from them and we were able to completely shut them off, close them off our network and just, you know, the way we got them back on, which was fortunate for them to even be allowed back on to our, our network. It took time, but we were able to do it and we knew effectively that we hadn't been exposed. The risk was as reduced as we could do at our end. If you design assuming that they're going to get hacked, then you wouldn't have to go back to the survey to figure it out because you would already know that you're protected. And that's the change that I want to get to. Like you shouldn't have to go look at the survey to figure out what your exposure is. You should know it because you've designed your defense posture in that way. Yeah, it's a really good point, right? You'll get me thinking here because it's almost like steps <laughs> of maturity, right? As well. I almost feel like when you're getting to that point, that's like the next layer above what I've just mentioned, right? It's like, oh, we've designed everything now. We've freed up enough time that we can actually spend some brain power here to think about actually for these, I don't know, X number of vital suppliers, how are we going to design our uh, contingency strategy should this happen and build from the outset? So I, and I'm, and I'm just thinking here, it's like, how do you do that contractually with them as well? Like that would require some changes there potentially around the standard structure of some contracts to enable that to happen. It's a good thought exercise. So I'm glad you brought that up. Well, yeah, because that's how we protect ourselves, not by, you know, sending out a survey. And, and the other part is you said is something important, your top suppliers, because Let's just say you had 30,000 suppliers. Guess what? You are not securing yourself from 30,000 suppliers. So if ever there was a case for segmentation, obviously, which I know in procurement we do based on value and, and volume and other sort of factors, but you are not managing 30,000 suppliers. I will argue you will barely manage 1,000 suppliers. So even just in that sort of, like you have to take the top 100 at the enterprise level and give them the treatment you were just sort of visualizing. And then the other 900, we have to do something which is slightly less, but we have to, again, design what they can and cannot do. And then the other 29,000, you get them out of your systems because they should not be anywhere near your corporate systems. Yeah. I'm glad I asked that question <laughs> because we've uh, 
we pulled out <laughs> a lot of good stuff there. Like that was really cool to go through that for exercise. I'm super conscious of time. There's two questions I want to kind of finish this off with. Firstly, what's one piece of tech you can't live without, Eloise? Oh my God. Well, <laughs> well. besides, I'll assume you don't mean my iPhone, iPad, or let's, Apple Watch. Let's get rid of those because yeah. everyone is saying that. And I, I'm yeah. with the, like, yeah. for me, um, yeah. yeah. I'll actually give you a few because they're all sort of interrelated. So probably the biggest one is, well, I'll add two that I'll list that you're just going to put it, but I actually use LinkedIn and I use YouTube a lot. And yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, so I can't really live without those two because I actually do a lot of learning. So sidebar, but I try to read 30 minutes every day, write 30 minutes every day, and watch videos that are related to my research for 30 minutes every day. So YouTube is one leg of that. And I would add Audible in there too. <laughs> so all of those are like my de facto. But the one yeah. tool that, you know, I think in the question you're probably asking, I like Airtable, which is sort of an online spreadsheet. And I can't live without because I do all my activity tracking. I do all my public speaking tracking in there. And it just speaks to me because it's very visual and I like it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's super interesting. I, I, I've had a few people come to me with Airtable. I'm a massive Notion user. Like I, I've built a second brain in there. I just absolutely love it. And I track everything. Can I add one? I got to add. So some I just two weeks ago learned about Scrivener, which is for writers. And it's a great way to organize your thoughts. So I'm now hey, addicted wow. to that. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to send you some recommendations as well after this episode, after our recording. Well, awesome. I won't bore you with them now, but they might be cool. We've kind of covered this question, but I'm going to ask it just in case you want to offer up anything else other than uh, death to the ERP, which can be your wish here. But I'm a procurement genie. You've got just one wish. What is that wish? Oh, golly. <laughs> My one wish is that it's two sides of the same coin, is that we as procurement understand our value to the organization and we embrace it full throttle because procurement is viewed in such deficit terms within the organization, within the tech companies, everybody, consultants always talking about how procurement can't do this, shouldn't do that. There's a lot of judgment of procurement. And so my one wish is that we transcend all of that and really embrace you know, the, the greatness that we are. Think about the conversation we had about contracts. Like, like that's so much fun. And that's something you only happen with, like, we're not going to have that conversation with anybody else in the organization or risk management. Like many of the conversations, it's emblematic of how cool procurement is. And I don't think as practitioners, we embrace it. And then there's all these detractors within our community. So that's my wish. It's a nice wish. Thanks so much for jumping on this podcast today and just uh, nerding out with me. It's been super fun. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www gatekeeperhq.com and then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, 
thanks for listening. <laughs>